Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us to journey with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, which disciples were they? And why were they going to Emmaus instead of Galilee, as Jesus told them to do? What were they thinking or not thinking? Inquiring minds want to know. Now, Luke says one of them was named Cleopas. Now, this, by the way, is where it gets complicated because St. John says that Cleopas' wife was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and that Mary's sister was also named Mary, meaning it was Mary, Mary. And by the way, since Mary Magdalene was also at the cross in the empty tomb, it would have been Mary, Mary, Mary. A historical note explains this by saying Mary's parents had given her over to God's work in order to be Jesus' mom. So she belonged to God and not them. And since family names were very, very important, well, they named their other daughter Mary. Not confusing at all. Now, this points to it most likely being Mary and Cleopas, who were the disciples on the way to Emmaus. Another side note. In 180 AD, a historian named Hegesippus wrote that Cleopas and Mary were the parents of Simon. Now, that would make him Jesus' cousin. Simon became the second bishop of Jerusalem after the martyrdom of James in 62 AD. It was Simon who led the Christians across the Jordan River to Pella before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and then brought them back again after it was safe. Now, today in the Arab village of El Quibaba, uh, seven miles from Jerusalem, it has a church and a Franciscan monastery built over what is believed to have been Cleopas' house. That may also tell us why they were going to Emmaus because, oh, wait a minute, seven miles, isn't that what the Bible said? You see how this works together. So it gives us a pretty good idea who the disciples were. Now, why were they headed to Emmaus? Unless, of course, that was where Cleopas' house was. Since we aren't totally sure where Emmaus is because it doesn't exist anymore, we're not 100% sure. Some think it was where God invaded Jacob's dreams while he slept with a stone for a pillow. Um, it could have been Cleopas' house. But the only thing we know for certain is they were going away from Jerusalem. Now, when we walk out of our homes or get in our car, we are either going somewhere or we are going nowhere. Nowhere doesn't mean nowhere. It just means we're not going anywhere specific. It's like when somebody says, what do you want to eat? And we say anything. We do not mean a rock or a lump of coal, but we'd be okay with turkey or maybe a hamburger or some simon. Often, by the way, when we are going nowhere, what we're really doing is simply going away from wherever we're at. Now, if you'd been there and watched Jesus die, and by the way, it was an excruciating, bloody, prolonged affair. And by the way, if you happen to love Jesus, and if Jesus had brought you hope, then you might need to go nowhere in order to think. And perhaps that nowhere was Emmaus, the place where you went when you didn't know where else to go. Because, by the way, everybody's got one of those places where we go when we need to think. By the way, another side note, Emmaus translates as warm spring. And so I always wondered if it was more like a respite with a hot tub where you could sit in the warm, bubbly water and just kind of stare at the clouds or the sky while you figured everything in life out. Have you ever had a dream? I mean a dream that would save the world, that, that would make a difference, that would really, really help people. And you really believed in that dream. Now what happens when somebody tears that dream to shreds or, or takes your dream and co-ops it into something that actually hurts people? instead of helping people. You know, if we'd been standing at the foot of the cross and watched Jesus die, what would we have thunk of God's divine dream and the people who were killing it? 
If our heart is filled with anxiety, we won't be able to help others. If we allow the world to force us to run away, we won't be able to help others. If we allow the world to take that which is beautiful and turn it ugly, we won't be able to help others. We have seen what people do with the divine dream of God. We've seen what the church, including people who claim to love Jesus, do with the divine dream of God. We've seen what we do with the divine dream of God. And that's where our lessons start from. Easter candy and chocolate Easter bunnies are now 70% off, if you can find them. The lilies are dead. And by the way, just so you know, um, as of this Sunday, it's only 246 days until Christmas. We are disciples on the road to Emmaus, uh, overwhelmed, needing to think, needing to go somewhere that's nowhere. Now, what does Easter mean? What happened there? Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter, they're weighing heavy on our minds. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we take it a little too literally. We are so worried about the grammar and the words and pronouncing everything just right that we miss the message. In the 25th chapter of Isaiah, there is this beautiful metaphor of our life as a Christian. God comes down and wipes out all the kingdoms of the world. He destroys their cities, turns them into rubble. Now, reading between the lines, we insert ourselves into the story. The kingdoms and cities are actually the things of our lives that are not of God. Things like sin, death, disease, taxes, traffic, anger, loneliness, abandonment, the list, it goes on and on. God turns it all into a mountain of rubble. And Isaiah notes that the destruction is so complete that none of these things will ever rise again. Isaiah then goes on, but then the Lord of hosts will prepare a feast for all the peoples on this mountain this mountain made from the rubble of everything else. A feast of aged wine, choice meat, finely aged wine. On the mountain, he will destroy the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. He will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth. For the Lord has spoken. And on that day, it will be said, look, this is our God. We have waited for him and he has saved us. It's those last words that really get me. This is our God. We have waited for him and he has saved us. How good are you at waiting for God? Because I'm really, really terrible at it. And evidently the uh, disciples on their way to Emmaus were really bad at waiting for God as well. I don't know if you realize every time you come to church you're taking a foreign language class, Latin, Greek, German, a little Hawaiian pigeon thrown in here and there. If I say Kyrie eleison, some of you are immediately going to go back to the 1970s hit by Mr. Mister. But even if you do, you know that those words mean, Lord, have mercy. You know, while most of the ancient liturgy was, uh, liturgy was translated from Greek into Latin, and then, by the way, for Lutherans into German, the Kyrie remained in Greek because it was so well known. That, that it was like taco or pretzel or aloha, words that have become universal no matter which culture or language you speak. Imagine the disciples on the road to Emmaus were saying a version of the Kyrie as they walked along, arguing among themselves about what they'd seen and experienced. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. You know, a prayer to God for mercy is a prayer to the one who actually has the ability to be merciful. Some put a negative spin on it, believing it to be a prayer for God not to punish them. But it's actually a lot more than that. See, in light of the gospel, in light of Jesus and, and, and Easter and all of his promises, mercy is a prayer for change. It is a prayer that while you may not fully understand everything that happened and is happening, 
you know there is hope and there are possibilities. But these are things that you cannot bring about on your own. And so a prayer for mercy is a prayer for God to guide you where you need to go, to walk with you so that you don't get lost, to hold on to you when the things of this world are are trying to tear you apart and will make you go a different direction. A prayer for mercy is a prayer for hope. As I meandered down the road to Emmaus these last few weeks, not specifically thinking about anything or anyone, but more just doodling in my mind, it dawned on me. You know, if I'd been there, if I'd seen all that on Good Friday and remembered what Jesus said, yeah, I would have been scared. Not just about Jesus dying, but also about Jesus coming back to life. Because if Jesus is the Messiah, if he comes back to life, then that's scary because it becomes very, very personal. See, not counting the Old Testament prophecies, Jesus told his disciples at least three times that he had to suffer, die, and then on the third day be raised again. I'm pretty sure it was more than just three times. It was such a recurrent theme that the last time when Jesus said he was headed to Jerusalem and they couldn't talk him out of it, Thomas screamed out, well, we might as well go with him and die. And you could tell there's a little bit of both sarcasm and just, I'm so sick and tired of hearing this. For those of us who have been in the church for any period of time, we know that Jesus was born to die. He is the propitiation for our sins, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, the scapegoat, and all the other metaphors of God's, well, sacrificial love for his people. And yet, how real is that sacrifice? How much of God's sacrifice to save us do we really understand? I had been pastor of our Savior for less than a year. And if, by the way, you want to do a date to it, 1990. I had said aloha to dozens of our members who had headed out on peacetime deployments. That was all new to me. (laughs) As they left, they said they'd see me again in six months, and oh, would they have stories to tell from Westpac or wherever they went. Now, military life is not without danger, but there was very little thought given to none of them coming back. Kuwait was invaded. It was peacetime no more, then Afghanistan and Iraq for a second time. Suddenly, I was a pastor saying aloha to people who were going into battle. And for the first time, I realized some of them might not come back. We were at an elders meeting, and one of them turned and said, Hey, pastor, I should know that I've listed you as a member of the notification team if if something happens to me. And a couple of the others said, Yeah, we did too. And I choked. Now, I'd read Martin Luther's Whether Soldiers Too Can Be Saved three or four times. It helped me understand uh, both the role and the faith of the soldier, the sailor, the marine, the airman, the coastie, as they go off and do what they have been called to do. And, And it helped me understand a little bit about the families that they leave behind. In the midst of this road to Emmaus, while I was trying to figure it out, the church administrator came in one morning, tears just flowing from her eyes. Her cousin, who was a police officer, had been killed in the line of duty while serving a warrant. And I remember her saying, he knew. And I didn't know whether she was asking a question or making a statement as she wrestled with him knowing that this was a possibility. Now, it's the worst job in the military is the one where someone has to figure out how many people are going to die and how many people are going to be injured and, and, and the level of injuries in order to obtain an objective. And then somebody else higher up the chain determines if the objective is worth the price. 
It's just a short verse, but one of the most important in the Bible. It's in the first chapter of Peter's first letter, and it says, Jesus was chosen before the foundation of the world, but was revealed as our Savior at the end of the times for you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Yeah, read those words just a few minutes ago. Before God spoke and created anything and everything, he chose Jesus to be our Savior. He knew the cost. There was no hesitation. The objective was worth the price that had to be paid. And by the way, the objective was you and me being safe from sin and death. Maybe it's that verse from Peter, or maybe it's the last words of Jesus, it's finished, or the words from the centurion who looked up and said, truly this man was the Son of God that put me on the road to Emmaus after Easter, a road to the nowhere that leads me to the somewhere that I really need to be. See, if God believed we were worth the sacrifice, he must know something about us that we don't always see. But what is it? It also means he expects something from us. What do you think that is? And this is not, nor can it be an easy question. And if Jesus died to save us and then rose from the dead, how are we supposed to respond to that? And that puts us off down the road to Emmaus. Way back in 1991, when our first warriors began to return home, I really had no idea what to say. The things they'd seen, the things they'd done, thank you simply was not enough, and yet there really were no other words. Many of them were not the same person that I said aloha to many months before, nor could they be. And it was obvious they saw things differently. The best that I could do was remind them that they were loved by us and they were loved by God and that they were unique and, well, unreproducible miracles of God. How do you think Jesus saw things when he came out of the tomb? How do you think Jesus saw us? And by the way, he saw your face, he saw your life, he saw you. I know, it's 2,000 years later, but Jesus saw all of us when he came out of the tomb. I mean, he had single-handedly gone to war with Satan and hell. And he'd won. A few weeks before Easter, we had the story of Jesus bringing Lazarus back from the dead. Now, Jesus' words were very, very specific that day. It was a command of the highest order. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. On Easter, Jesus came out of the tomb and he looked at us, buried in our sins, entombed in messes of our own making, wars that we were fighting and losing. And he looked us straight in the eye and he said, Come forth. You know, the thing about tombs is because you are dead, you don't know you're in one until somebody yells at you to come out. And when you do, you are blinded by the light and overwhelmed by the fresh air and the sounds of friends and loved ones gasping because they thought you were gone forever and suddenly you're alive again. And that is why Easter is so scary. Are we ready to really live? Are we ready to embrace a new life, new opportunities? I mean, it's, it's not a question to take lightly, and so we head off to that nowhere that is somewhere called Emmaus to figure it out. Having a God who specializes in resurrections means the story is never over when we think it is. That's important for us to know. The story is only over when God says it's over. When the stone is rolled away and we stumble out of a tomb blinded by the light and the possibilities, I know it can be a little scary. We spend so much time during Lent worrying about Jesus getting out of the tomb we forget it was really all about us getting out of our tombs. 
You see, there was never a question about Jesus rising from the dead. The question is whether we will let Jesus raise us from the dead. When he calls out, what will happen? That's why Jesus chases us down the road. And as we engage him in idle conversations about our faith and God and life and forgiveness, he just nods and says, do you remember what God's word says about all of that? And we nod and we keep talking and walking. And then when we get where we think we've gone far enough down the road, he pulls out a loaf of bread and a cup of wine. And our eyes are opened. And we find ourselves standing outside of our tomb and the light is blazing and the people are gasping and there's this beautiful meal of forgiveness just just waiting for us. We may not know all the answers. And we may have to walk this road to Emmaus over and over again during our life. But we know enough because we know Jesus. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.